This is Next Question with IGNS. I'm your host, Rachel Coletta. In today's episode, we're going to discuss some of the hot topics, legal issues, and regulatory issues that are facing healthcare professionals today. Our guest for today's podcast is Mr. John Maroney. John is a partner at Friar Levitt and focuses his practice on transactional and regulatory healthcare law. Mr. Maroney represents a wide variety of clients from physicians to hospitals to pharmacies and drug manufacturers. He advises clients on matters involving anti-kickback, Stark, HIPAA, FDA, DEA laws and rules and state licensing matters. Mr. Maroney also represents clients in civil matters before the Department of Justice and the Office of the Inspector General, settling dozens of matters during his career. He also structures arrangements among referral sources and providers to assure compliance with applicable laws and regulations. Thank you for joining us today, Mr. Maroney. Thank you for having me. This is such a great uh, podcast because we know there are so many things going on legislatively. Um, new laws are coming out. There are a lot of hot topics. So I'm glad to have you here to be able to, to discuss some of these issues. So why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? So uh, I've been in healthcare my entire career. I started out as a clinician. I'm a critical care paramedic and a nurse. Um, I was a hospital executive um, for 20 years in an academic medical center in New York City before transitioning over to full-time practice of, of healthcare law. Um, and as you mentioned, I work at a boutique law firm. I'm one of the partners and I am the head of regulatory and transactional law in the life sciences space. We have approximately 40 attorneys that just do health healthcare law. And we represent, as you mentioned, um, mostly on the provider side. And really, we engage in any type of, of advice to clients to help them um, navigate the complexities of, of the healthcare space. Um, so today I'm going to be, be speaking about some topics very in very broad context um, and some very specific hot topics. So for um, the audience here, I'm, I'm sure that, that you have suffered through the complexities of, of the legal landscape. Um, and some of those laws are at the federal level, state laws, um, licensing laws, um, and then rules promulgated by non-government agencies like joint commission and accrediting bodies. Um, and then every, virtually everything that's done is against a backdrop of a standard of care um, that is very often not memorialized anywhere, but created through um, practice uh, and research and just community standards. And just hearing you say all that stuff, it's, it makes us realize more and more how difficult it is to be able to practice healthcare in today's culture with all of these things hanging over us. Um, so again, we're so, we're so glad that you're here to talk about these things. Unfortunately, I have to advise my clients very frequently that much of healthcare being so heavily regulated um, really requires an analysis of the applicable laws that very often common sense doesn't dictate. There are many things that are, that are done, uh, actually that are ubiquitous in, in the rest of the business world, um, that if it occurs in the healthcare context, it can literally be a federal felony. So I, I give people this example of that, you know, if you, 
if you have a regular you know retail store and a vendor comes in and says you know here's free basketball tickets or you know you buy you know 20 pairs of my shoes i'll give you five for free um that is that that is a practice that's ubiquitous you do that in the healthcare context and you very likely run afoul of anti-kickback laws and, and, and ethics laws. And when did those things come into play? Because um, I remember the days where there were, were a lot of incentives and inducements given to healthcare professionals. It was kind of the, the name of the game. Yep. So, um, and that's a very good question and it leads into some, some other topics that we're going to be discussing about changes to the laws. But these laws, many of them anti-kickback and Stark, which um, anti-kickback is um, the federal law and there's, there's usually state equivalents where there cannot be a quid pro quo, meaning that if, if a provider that's in a, in a position to refer a patient um, receives anything in, in the form of remuneration back, um, that would constitute a kickback. Stark is the physician self-dealing statute, which means that a physician generally cannot refer to an entity that they have a financial interest in. So Stark, for example, was created over 30 years ago. And the impetus for that was the government didn't want physicians owning laboratories or, or partnering with clinical laboratories, where each time they sent a, a specimen to, to that um, to that laboratory or to that entity that they would receive in the form of profit um, remuneration. So that's why Stark was created. Anti-kickback equally was created um, almost three decades ago and was written extremely broadly to, to capture um, any type of remuneration paid in the exchange for, um, for a referral. So in, the, in, in our context here, where we're dealing with, with home infusion, for example, if a home infusion company or a pharmacy um, would give something of value to the physician that's making the referral or writing the prescription, that would violate anti-kickback. And how does the Sunshine Act fit into all of these things that you're talking about? Well, the Sunshine Act is very is similar um, where it captures any type of um, any type of remuneration that flows to physician, where kind of the nexus between the referral and, and the payment is much more diffuse, meaning that um, you have a lot, of, a lot of areas within healthcare where um, drug manufacturers, device companies um, need to pay physicians, or need, um, whether it's to engage in clinical research or serve on um, committees um, that advise. So the Sunshine Act really is, is just a mechanism that requires physicians to account for the payments that they're receiving so from for, the manufacturer. So for bona fide services, not yes. for activity, pleasure activities or other types of inducements like golf trips and ski yep. trips and those types of things, yep. which used to be very prevalent. Yep. And the the Sunshine Act limits that in, into that, that the compensation needs to be reasonable. That, um, as you mentioned, is that where, where a, a manufacturer or, or a device company, their salespeople or their executives 
have dinner with a physician or they're consulting with physicians or one of the common issues was that um, the drug manufacturer or company would set up what looked like a bona fide uh, conference for physicians, but it ended up being in, in a very expensive, faraway land, and there was a very limited amount of actual work that was being done. So a lot of these laws have actually made it better, uh, putting manufacturers on an even playing field where the big guys aren't always getting all of the research, all of the dollars, all of the greats of physician speakers kind of leveled the playing field. Yes, and the, the, these laws have evolved over the years, and, and this is probably an area that's, that's the most difficult for, for um, providers to understand. It's difficult for non-attorneys um, to understand, and it's really difficult for um, even a lot of non-healthcare attorneys to understand. But over the years, to address certain problems with the laws being written so broadly, the federal government promulgated what are called safe harbors. Um, and, and a safe harbor um, is really what it means, is that if you are in that, that area, you are safe from being prosecuted under the law. All right, so, so fundamentally, the government is saying, if you do this activity, you're violating the law. But if you do it this way, we won't consider it violating the law. So an example is, is really better to understand it. So under both Stark and anti-kickback, physicians couldn't own ambulatory surgery centers. Um, the government recognized that this was, was counterproductive to the healthcare system as Medicare, Medicaid, and payers were looking to push many of, of the surgical procedures out of the more expensive acute care hospitals into ambulatory settings. Um, and the government felt that it was, it was beneficial to allow physicians to own ambulatory surgery centers to incentivize them to use the ambulatory surgery center rather than the hospital. So there is a safe harbor that allows surgeons um, and to own a portion of an ambulatory surgery center. And there are, there are usually eight to 10 elements of the safe harbor. And if you meet all, all of those elements of the safe harbor, you won't be considered violating the law and you will be safe from enforcement actions under anti-kickback. That's really interesting. It uh, definitely takes an attorney to help work through these issues with physicians, with healthcare providers. And I assume that's a lot of the things that you do in your practice. It, it's, one, it's one of the significant things that we do is that we work with, um, with many participants in the drug supply chain and in the delivery of healthcare to structure arrangements um, that comply. And very often there will be multiple pieces to transactions and each one of those, those pieces have to fit within a regulatory safe harbor. So again, an example here is um, we've, we've heard people speaking today um, and yesterday about um, manufacturer hubs. Um, so in structuring a manufacturer hub, and the term hub is kind of a, a ill-defined term, is that just in entering into an agreement or being involved with a manufacturer, um, that hub model touches upon anti-kickback, 
STAR, HIPAA, licensing laws, um, a, a really a whole variety of subject matter um, that needs to be evaluated. Um, even something as simple as, as who can handle a prescription. When a doctor writes an order, um, that should really be going directly to the provider. Uh, the uh, an order, uh, which is protected health information, has to be communicated directly to another covered entity or business associate of, of the physician. So when a physician sends an order directly to a pharmacy or to, to an infusion provider or a nursing agency, they're both covered entities and that information can be communicated. When you have something like a third party hub, which is just a company maybe funded by a manufacturer that is now aggregating data or taking that information, that has to be done within the context of and against the backdrop of both HIPAA and more restrictive state laws governing the handling of protected health information. So that's just one example of how complicated these, these transactions can become. So I think that's a good uh, transitioning point to get into talking about how, how some of these laws uh, affect the IV, IV, IG practice space. So can you expand a little bit about how how in the IG space we are impacted by some of these regulations and laws. Sure. So with, within the practice space, you have a variety of different providers and some different models of the way that, that the services are being de delivered. Um, and as your audience knows, there's very often um, complexity as to whether something, a service is reimbursed on the medical benefit or whether it's, whether it's reimbursed on the pharmacy benefit. And that affects things like anti-kickback and start. Um, so um, some infusion services um, are provided in a physician's office. Um, location and the location codes that are used for insurance companies create some additional complexity. So for example, when, when a patient's um, services are delivered at home, by a home infusion provider, um, that is the location code that's used. And they, they are the folks that are providing the care. But very often, it's, uh, the service is billed by the pharmacy under the PBM benefit and then paying the, um, the infusion provider. So that transaction needs to meet regulatory safe harbor um, so that... Um, that there isn't any, any um, remuneration that's paid either way. Because here, the home infusion provider is in, a, is in a position to make referrals to the pharmacy and vice versa. So that's an example of, of how, um, how that, can, that can occur. The same thing, um, many, very often, um, and I think it's applicable here in, in the overall space, but you also have physicians that are billing um, for, the, for the infusion service in a suite. Uh, and they bill under, for Medicare, under location 11, physician office. And um, sometimes they buy and bill where they're buying the drug from a wholesaler and a or a manufacturer. And they're billing a CPT code and then a J code for the drug. So everything is subsumed within that physician practice. Um, so, that's kind of a little cleaner, but then you have situations where um, you have either brown bagging or white bagging situations. So 
and there's a lot of a lot of confusion and, and controversy about that and some payers um, we we have clients very often that are put in a situation that they try and build the medical benefit and it's denied they try and build the pharmacy benefit and it's also denied and they're caught in this netherworld um, so what sometimes occurs is white bagging so what white bagging is is that um, the pharmacy bills the drug product under the PBM contract. The physician bills their CPT code for the infusion. And the pharmacy ships the, the drug directly to the physician. And the physician is acting as the patient's agent in accepting that drug and then performs the infusion. In the brown bagging scenario, the drug is given to the patient. Um, so the pharmacy fills the medication prescription, gives it to the patient, and then the patient brings it to, um, to their physician to have it infused. Now, you can see that clinically having a drug, particularly an infusion drug, handed to a patient um, is probably not a really good method for conveying the medication. You don't know if the patient you know, leaves it in the trunk of their car or exposes it to extreme cold. Um, so that kind of custody of the medication um, is not really very good. So we kind of try and advise clients against that because the other laws that everybody has to um, uh, labor under is, is the standard of care and, and the risk of being sued for malpractice um, because of, um, you know, inappropriate care um, or, or really negligence in, in the delivery of that care. Yeah, it seems that that would be a really risky situation to have a patient just bring his medication in because truly you do not know how it was handled, how it was stored, um, but you ultimately are responsible if you're administering that medication for any adverse reactions that might happen to the patient. Yep. Very interesting. Um, so let's move on to some kind of hot topics, some, some kind of trending issues, uh, things that are coming up or proposed changes such as um, USP 800. Can you expand on that a little bit? Sure. So USP, all of the USP chapters are guidance by a non-government agency, um, but most people view them as having the force of law. They don't have the force of law until they're adopted. Um, now, USP 800, um, we work with extensively, and there's a lot of misconception about USP 800. Um, a lot of folks have looked at it as, okay, just, uh, just applying to compounding. Um, 797 is the chapter that deals with sterile compounding. USP 800 deals with um, hazardous drugs. So. Any drug that's on the NIOSH list as a hazardous drug is swept within the ambit of, of USP 800. And that's whether it's a finished drug or it is, it is compounded. A lot of the focus is on compounding because there's special handling um, of, of hazardous drugs in the compounding space. Um, but there's also um, handling concerns with finished drugs. So you can be handling a finished infusion drug that's, that's on the NIOSH list and so that, that um, the provider is bound by all the requirements of USP 800. 
the other thing that, that I, I um, always try and point out to my clients, um, and we have, we have some clients that um, do a huge amount of infusion. Um, we have physician practices that number in the hundreds, and um, there is a huge liability as an employer. Um, and and in, in this conference alone, there are hundreds of nurses that are handling these products. Um, there, is, there are requirements that the employer um, provide the appropriate um, personal protective equipment, the appropriate environment, um, the mechanism to deal with spills of, of hazardous drugs. So it really is a complete, um, a complete um, requirement that goes well beyond compounding that needs to be, be addressed. Now, as I mentioned, uh, it doesn't have the force of law, but very often it establishes these regulations or these guidances create a standard of care um, that if you don't do it. The other thing that, that happens though, which is, which is more common, is that a legislature will adopt it. So many state boards of pharmacy have adopted USP 800 as a requirement. Additionally, PBMs and many of the insurers are sending out questionnaires to see how, how providers are managing USP 800, asking for your policies and procedures on personal protective equipment and handling of it, storage, um, how do you handle spills, and how is it compounded? What environment are you doing admixture in? Is it under the appropriate type of hood and venting? So it, it's a pretty extensive um, set of regulations. Yeah, it sounds like we could do an entire podcast on USP 800. Yeah. Um, so for more information on USP 797 and USP 800, you can visit USP.org. <laughs>